Well, here we are. Here we are again in the fourth week of Lent, having just suffered through daylight savings time springing forward. I commend you for setting your alarm clocks an hour early and changing the time. Good job. Here we are in the fourth week of Lent and having covered more than half of the capital vices. We've talked about pride, we've talked about greed and envy, we've talked about the American church's favorite vice, sloth. I'm not a math major, but 7 minus 4 is 3, 4 is greater than 3, that's more than half. Having talked about more than half of the capital vices, it seems at this point a good and right thing to remind and be reminded of one simple truth. Jesus loves sinners. Amen. Yeah, thank God is right. It's necessary, I do think. It is necessary for us to have our sins and our corruptions exposed. But it can become far too easy to focus on the wrong thing and thus miss the point. The goal of every diagnosis is the healing of the disease, and so the goal of exposing and realizing our sin and our sinfulness is the reception of forgiveness in, through, and by Jesus Christ. And so here on this fourth Sunday of Lent, hear this, know this, embrace this. Jesus loves you. Forgiveness and transformation are offered to you in his name. Easter is coming. Now, with that said, let's dive back in to the seven deadly sins. Let's continue our conversation about the seven capital vices by turning to what I would consider, consider America's favorite vices, gluttony and lust. A few years ago, television cooking and travel personality Anthony Bourdain. Do you know Anthony Bourdain? Anybody know Anthony Bourdain? He seems to be more famous now for traveling and making snarky remarks about the things he encounters than he ever was for cooking, but regardless, he's still considered to be some sort of uh, celebrity chef. Uh, on one of his shows, or perhaps it was in an interview, he said this, your body is not a temple, it's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> that strikes me as being a really accurate reflection of the mindset that cultivates the capital vices of gluttony and lust. Remember, we've talked about vices being habits of the heart, habits of being that are manifested in our behavior. These habits of the heart create grooves. They create tracks through which we operate. And if we have the mindset that our body is an amusement park to enjoy the ride, we have this habit of the heart, either of gluttony or of lust, creating a groove that will express itself in the physical manifestations of those two things. I put them together for this particular sermon because gluttony and lust are related. Both of them are centered on the pursuit, the capture, and experience of physical pleasure. And let me restate that, I think, to maybe capture it more accurately. Both gluttony and lust are the self-centered pursuit uh, and capture and experience of physical pleasure. Gluttony, of course, uh, focusing on the physical pleasure around food and drink, sex around the physical pleasure, or lust around the physical pleasure of sex. 
And as we look at them this morning, let's seek to understand them. Let's seek to understand their underlying causes. And let's also look toward an antidote for them. And I'm sure that most of us intuitively know what gluttony is. But like most, most things in life, gluttony isn't as simple as we perhaps want it to be. Gluttony is the habit of the heart found in the excessive focus upon and desire for physical pleasure derived from food and drink, the consumption of food and drink. And, and uh, most often we think that gluttony applies only to those who overindulge. That's a mistake. That's wrong. There are actually five primary ways that gluttony is expressed, and only one of the five has anything to do with the quantity of food that is consumed. So using the acronym FRESH, F-R-E-S-H, gluttony is found in fastidious eating. Fastidious eating. Let me explain that fastidious eating. Uh, Anna and I were blessed uh, a, a few months ago to be able to take the kids out to eat. And so we went to a, a restaurant that we w don't typically go to. And, uh, we were there enjoying a wonderful meal. Well, the three of us were enjoying a wonderful meal. Declan refused to eat anything that evening, um, <laughs> as a two-year-old will do. Uh, but we were sitting there, and we couldn't help but overhear the conversation going on at the table next to us. It was very close to us, and they were speaking very loudly. They were talking to the manager about the quality of the food that they had received in their order. And, and the wife of the couple was very upset. Her rice had been underprepared. It was crunchy when she bit into it. And so the manager, of course, said, well, I'll take care of that for you. He took the rice back, threw away the original batch, brought out the fresh rice to her. He said, is there anything else I can do for you? How else can I help, help you and make you happy with our restaurant this evening? And the husband of the group said, well, you could serve the wine at the temperature that it's supposed to be served at. The manager said, well, we have, uh, there's that French word again, sommelierie. What? Sommelier. Isn't that a country in Africa? But um, ching Like that. So the, uh, the manager says, well, we have a sommelier on staff, and we, we serve the wine at the temperature that he recommends. And so this is in accordance to his recommendation. And they, you know, kind of huffed and puffed. And the manager, wanting to save face and be as gracious as he possibly could, said, is there anything else I can do for you? What else can I do? How about I send you free dessert? And so they sent free dessert over, and as we were enjoying our, I don't even remember what we were having. It was delicious, I'm sure. As we were enjoying our dinner, uh, the manager came back and said, how was your free dessert? How was your, your brownie Sunday?" And they said, well, the brownie was overbaked. <laughs> it's fastidious eating, right? The demand, the demand the right food be prepared in the right way according to your definition of right and sending it back and demanding Otherwise, when it doesn't happen. That's the F, fresh, fastidious, ravenous eating. I knew guys like this in high school. They would eat greedily with a fork in both hands. One to shovel it in and the other to stab anybody who would have the guts to try to steal food off of their plate. That's ravenous eating. Excessive eating, of course, gluttony. We're familiar uh, eating far more than is necessary, eating far more than is rational. Eating far more than you need. Sumptuous eating. The demand and the expectation of eating only a certain kind of food, only the best will do. This is a true story. A, a few years ago, we had a visitor come to our church office. Chris Cannon was there, and Allison was there. They can attest to the veracity of this story. 
the, this individual was in desperate needs, passing through Destin, and needed help. And I said, well, we can help you in this way. I've got, you said you haven't eaten for a few days. I, I've got some McDonald's gift cards. Now, I mean, I know it's not Ruth's Chris, but it's food, and it'll, it'll get you down the road. It's nourishment. And they said, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. I only eat organic. <laughs> Sumptuous eating. The demand that you get the best and only the best will do. That, that too, is gluttony. And then, of course, there's hasty eating, eating rapidly as if you have, have not eaten in a long time and won't be able to get enough. Any dog lover knows what hasty eating looks like because a dog is gluttonous and will just consume. These are all forms of gluttony because they all revolve around getting what you want, your physical pleasure, your desires met through the consumption of food, whether it's the right food prepared in the right way or a whole lot of whatever or eating fast or eating only the best. And like gluttony, lust focuses on physical pleasure as well. Lust, the habit of the heart that focuses on the pleasure of sex, even if alone. And lest we think that lust is a problem for people only of a certain age or of a certain demographic or of a certain gender or of a certain generation or is restricted to only physical activity, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus declared that lust, before it is ever physically manifested, is found in the heart. Statistics and studies reveal America and our world to be awash in an epidemic of lust. In 2016, viewers accessed a single internet pornography site, one pornography site in one year, for an equivalent of four and a half billion hours of viewing. Between the years 2015 and 2017, worldwide, in those two years, the time equivalent spent in the consumption of internet porn was one million years. Legalized pornography makes more money per year than Hollywood. Hollywood, right? Black Panther just passed a billion dollars in ticket sales. Nothing compared to porn industry. Legalized pornography makes more money per year in America than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And these stats are only about visual pornography. They're only about what the, 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 the pornography on the internet or on movies. They have nothing to do with the sexual content, the innuendo and entendre of so much popular culture, media, and entertainment. We human beings are people with an appetite for physical pleasure. We seem to be a people with appetites for destruction. Perhaps more than any of the other capital vices, gluttony and lust are corrupted uses of good things. Food and sex are good things. They're given by God for the good of his creation, for the continuation of the human race. But like so many good things, they and their use can be and are often twisted and corrupted. Gluttony and lust twist and corrupt good things, food and sex. And in this, they destroy life. They destroy life first in the first place by reducing everything. 
Gluttony and lust are both reductionists. They reduce us to the physical as they lead us to treat our bodies like mere slabs of meat, or as Anthony Bourdain put it, an amusement park. Lust especially leads us to treat others as instruments for our own pleasure. As John Mayer put it in his song, your body is a wonderland. These two vices reduce us to purely physical beings, stomachs and genitals with little else, as if the material or physical is the sum total of our existence and of our identity. When it comes to gluttony and lust, it's easy to define them. Like Justice Potter Stewart, we sort of know them when we see them. What can be difficult is understanding the underlying reasons for and causes of the vices and their manifestations. For example, uh, perhaps it's because of the ease with which they can be cultivated. Gluttony and lust are often manifested as a result of anxiety or stress in a person's life. People stress eat. Anyone ever stress eaten a piece of cake or the whole cake? Just a small one? <laughs> people stress eat. People exercise their lust in an effort to blow off some steam, to get a handle on it, to control. On a more internal level, the exercise of these vices can be a response to a perceived lack of power, a perceived lack of control in their lives. And so at least in this one avenue, at least in this one pursuit of personal pleasure, they can have control over it. And I recognize that these are complicated issues. And I recognize that my statements here may be far too simple, but it seems as though to me that, that gluttony and lust are especially exercised out of a perceived lack of something. If you're responding to stress and anxiety, it's a lack of peace. If you're responding to a lack of control, it's a lack of control or power. But is there a deeper level lack of something? Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas said this, Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. Without true spiritual joy, this, with a lack of spiritual joy, Aquinas says it is necessary that we will respond with gluttony or lust, with an excessive pursuit of physical pleasure, to fill in, to replace, to make up for that lack. Peter Kreft puts it this way, the motivation for gluttony is the unconscious self-image of emptiness. I must fill myself because I am empty, ghost-like, and worthless. So we try to fill ourselves up with the best quality food or the amazing amount of food that we can perhaps consume. What is it that's missing? What is it that we're trying to capture? What are we trying to make up for? I think we come to the point when we hear St. Augustine as he writes in the opening paragraphs of his Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. This is what is lacking for Christians and non-Christians alike. This is what is lacking for those who deal intensely with the capital vices of gluttony and lust, spiritual joy, and rest in God. And if that is what is lacking, then that necessarily is then the antidote. 
in his weight of glory, C.S. Lewis portrays what we're talking about here. We're half-hearted creatures, he writes, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. How can we find real and lasting joy? How can we fill the ghost that's within? How can we exchange our mud pies for a holiday at sea? How can we find joy and rest? In our gospel reading this morning, we heard Jesus say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In this word picture, Jesus describes discipleship in terms of close, intimate connection with him. This yoking to Jesus remains the only reality that will satisfy the deepest desires, the deepest longings of the human heart. And in the yoke of Jesus, we can have true spiritual joy. In the yoke of Jesus, we can be filled up. In the yoke of Jesus, we can find rest as we exchange our mud pies for a holiday at sea. There is joy in discipleship. There, in the yoke of Christ, we are forgiven and we are freed. There, in the yoke of Christ, the penalty of sin is paid. The power of sin is broken. There, in the yoke of Christ, we are justified by grace through faith. We are made new and adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. And there is the place of joy. A joy that, like the sun, outshines every star in the sky, far eclipses the temporary joys we may find in gluttony and lust. My friend Doug Bowers put it this way, there is more joy in total submission to Jesus than there is in anything found in this world. Why? Because we were made for an intimate connection with God and our hearts will find no rest until they rest in Him. And that yoke brings joy. That yoke of Jesus brings rest. Being yoked to Jesus is another word Another word picture for discipleship, and it does not mean a life of leisure and luxury. For while Jesus uses the word rest to describe this life, he doesn't seem to mean rest from obedience and an active living for God. Rather, he seems to mean rest from any effort of self-rescue. And so perhaps it is that rather than trying harder, trying harder is about as effective as a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. We can now find rest and strength in Jesus as it is Jesus who enables his people to overcome anxiety, fear, uncertainty, meaninglessness, and ghost-likeness through pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all who believe. These things we try to fix on our own, the rest that we try to secure for ourselves, all these things can only be healed, filled up and filled in by Jesus. That is grace, my friends. That is grace. Healing first comes in the exposing of sin. That is grace. Healing comes 
As we turn to Jesus for forgiveness, that is grace, healing comes as he pours out the Holy Spirit on all who believe, that is grace. First comes grace, then comes obedience. And so with my apologies to Mr. Burdain, but I'm really not that sorry, he is wrong. As we heard this morning from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Having been bought with a price, the death and resurrection of Jesus, having received grace for forgiveness, and having received the grace that is found in the gift of the Holy Spirit, St. Paul commands, glorify God in your body. And in that context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's referring back to glorify God in your body, abstain from lust and sexual immorality, and be careful about what you put in your mouth. Bought at a price, yoked to Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus' people are called to obey. And now in the power of the Holy Spirit are able to do it. Again, from St. Augustine's Confessions, And behold, thou art close at hand to deliver us from the wretchedness of error and establish us in thy way, and console us with thy word. Run, I shall bear you up and bring you and carry you to the end. Being born up by God, yoked to Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, grace comes before obedience, but there still is the command to run. There are practical steps that we can take as we battle the vices of gluttony and lust. And first, as we've said, as Ethan and I have said over the past several weeks, the first thing to do when we find perhaps in ourselves a struggle or an intense struggle with one of these capital vices, the first thing to do is confess. Confession is good for the soul. And a double confession of sin is necessary for freedom from it. By double confession, I mean this. First, confessing the sin itself, the sin against God and against neighbor in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone, and then confessing that we are helpless to overcome it on our own. That's a double confession. Confessing the sin and then saying, Jesus, I need your help to beat this. Having confessed and living a life of ongoing confession, another really practical step is, one of the, is found in one of the disciplines of Lent. It's fasting. If you have a problem, if you have a, an intense struggle with this sin of gluttony, fast. Stop eating. Put down the fork. Fast from meals, specific foods or food groups, drinks, or even restaurants. This is it an effective way to break out of this groove of behavior that's created by the habit of the heart? Another example, if you have an intense struggle against the capital vice of lust and the sins that go with it, fasting from the internet or from certain websites or magazines through which that lust is cultivated is a tremendously good idea. Maybe more drastically, discontinue the internet use at your house. Literally call Cox or CenturyLink and tell them that it's over. You're breaking up with them. Cox only works half the time anyway, so I mean, come on. <laughs> I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it off. Be willing to go to 
drastic measures to be done with the sin that's in your life. If that means fasting from a type of food, if that means fasting from a restaurant or a drink to break out of that, then do it. If that means cutting off the internet from your house, if that means canceling your Sports Illustrated subscription so you don't get the swimsuit edition, let's not kid ourselves, that is porn, then do it. All the vices can be, in the power of the Holy Spirit, uprooted from your life, from my life, from our life. And finally, find accountability and trusted counselors. Confess, fast, and accountability. All vices, all sin are social in nature. There is not a single sin that the only person who suffers under that sin is the sinner. All sin is social in nature. They affect more than the one harboring them, and so the antidote is social as well. Find a trusted counselor to whom you can go to say, I need your help. I recognize that there are more to gluttony and lust. There is more to gluttony and lust in their practice than we can adequately cover in our sermon time this morning. I was really going to challenge you guys in sloth today and go for about an hour on this topic, but I thought that would be a bad idea. And I recognize that there are layers to these kinds of behaviors and that this conversation has really only scratched the surface or perhaps dredged up stuff from the bottom. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is convicting you now of these vices or others. If that is the case, please know, Jesus loves you. And there is joy, there is rest, there is freedom available in His yoke. If it is the case that you are now being convicted of sin, we're getting ready to sing a song in which Doug will say, come as you are. The gracious thing about God is that he welcomes us as we are, but he never leaves us that way. Come as you are, heartbroken and heart sick. Come as you are, heavy laden with sin. and Lay it down. Being forgiven in Jesus Christ, taking up the yoke of freedom, And in His grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be freed from this captivity. And in His yoke, you can know joy, you can know rest, you can find that which we all so desperately long. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and give you thanks. Thank you for Jesus, the one in whom there is forgiveness, there is rest, and there is freedom. We pray that you would come and do your work. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Lead us into confession. And Lord, we pray that as you do this, you would transform us in the power of your Holy Spirit as you bring us into union with Christ and form in us his very image. Come and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship this morning.